Uh, let's ask God to help us uh, with his word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word says uh, that you are the God who loves believers in Jesus, that you love us, and that you have given this word to us to help us persevere in trusting Jesus and so be saved. Uh, we pray in your mercy that we would hear it as your word, we would take it to heart, and through your word and spirit be those who persevere. Help us to understand it, to believe it, and help me to speak it truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, have you ever been called out in your behaviour by a good friend? I'm sure that probably hurt at the time, but weren't you grateful for it afterwards? It says, the wounds of a friend are faithful. And the author of Hebrews is a faithful friend to his first hearers and to us. He's calling out of what he calls in verse 11, the dullness of their hearing. He's calling out of their dullness and immaturity. May wound. But he does it because, as we see in verse 11 of chapter 6, he is someone who passionately longs for each of them to come to the fullness of what we hope for as believers, to come into our inheritance of the new heaven and earth. So he writes as he does because he knows that to stay in immaturity, to remain dull in hearing, is dangerous and destructive. But to grow up is to be equipped to live the faithful and persevering life that inherits the promises. And in God's mercy, I pray that as we look at this together, you and I will be spurred on to apply ourselves diligently to God's truth and so grow up in order that each of us will be amongst those who inherit the promises. Now remember the context of the first hearers. Our author knows that they're under the pressure of opposition and persecution and under that pressure that they're being tempted to go back to the safety and acceptance of the synagogue, to a Judaism that had no place for Jesus. And we also can know, can't we, that kind of pressure, that pressure not to stand out from the crowd because of your loyalty to Jesus, the pressure to seek safety and acceptance in muting or hiding or denying your faith in Jesus. Pressure's real. We know that. And under pressure, you kind of need more than a shout from the sideline, you know, somebody on the sideline saying, don't give in, keep going. No, to stay faithful to Jesus, what we need is conviction about Jesus, about his greatness and the greatness of the salvation he brings. And our author intends to give his hearers that conviction. He's already introduced the idea of Jesus as the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which is perhaps for many of us a kind of puzzling phrase. But he is keen to expand on that. He has, he says, verse 11, about this much to say. Why? Because he knows that if his hearers grasp this reality, Jesus as our high priest, if they understood what that means for them and their relationship with the living God, they'd see how great and complete and unique a saviour Jesus is for his people. How useless and destructive 
returning to Judaism or any kind of turning away from Jesus would be and how it is worth suffering to keep on being one of Jesus' people. Grasping this truth that Jesus is our high priest forever would actually revolutionise the understanding of his hearers about Jesus. That'll be true for us too. If, as you read and listen to Hebrews, you grasp the reality of Jesus as your high priest, you'll actually see how useless to make you right with God, to give you a hope of eternal life, any system is that teaches you to turn back to you and what you do, whether it's good works or religious rituals. Oh, and you'll also see how effective and final is the salvation Jesus brings, how trusting him you're freed from every system that would enslave you to works. Oh, and freed from every false teacher who wants to insist that you need them more than you need Jesus. Our author knows he has the truth that will give his hearers the conviction to endure and triumph. But just like it's sometimes hard to get your kids to take their medicine, and uh, you know we had real struggles with one of our children to you know, get them to suck on that gastrolite ice block, even though it was just what they needed at the time. Well, just like it's hard to get your kids to take their medicine, sometimes it can be hard to get people to engage with what you know will really help them. And our author knows that. It's not just at this point that he's been going on for a while, though he has. Remember, Hebrews was written to be read to the congregation beginning to end. No, the problem is not the length. Oh, it's not even the difficulty of the material he's about to share with them about Jesus being the high priest. No, our author knows that the problem belongs to his listeners. They have become, he says, dull of hearing. About this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. He's saying that they are lazy, sluggish, dull-witted in their engagement with the Christian gospel. They don't want to think about it, probe deeper into the meaning of their confession. They've let themselves grow indifferent to and disinterested in Christian truth. And this is their key issue. And it's an attitude he writes to get them to change. And this dullness of hearing is also serious, for listening is the foundation of faithful perseverance in Hebrews. He's already told them the Spirit summons today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your heart. So it's serious to become dull, disengaged to the Spirit's voice. But you can understand their reluctance to engage. You can understand how that could develop where you're facing pressure as a Christian, can't you? Uh, they want to be small targets. They don't want to become more distinctive. And so they are reluctant to engage with teaching that will increase the difference and expose them to more criticism and complaint. They're fearful of what engaging seriously with obedience to God's word might lead to it might mean they end up suffering just as Jesus did. The suffering that comes with the obedience of faith they've just heard about in chapter 5. And so they're putting the brakes on their progress in the Christian life. 
Yes, they're still Christian, but they'd rather hear about what they had in common with the world around them, not where Christians stand out. It's this laziness, it's this sluggishness, this determined intellectual non-engagement, which is the key issue for the hearers in this whole passage. The NIV and ESV translations actually don't make it clear, but the CSV does. You see, this whole section is sandwiched between references to being dull and lazy. 5.11, he points out the problem. You have become too lazy to understand. 6.12, the conclusion he tells you that he's written so that they won't become lazy. This is the main danger they must address, the enemy of their progress, what our author wants to change before he gets them to think about Jesus as our high priest in chapters 7 to 10. And because of this laziness, they've actually not made the progress they should have made in the Christian life. In fact, as Pete was suggesting, inappropriately, they seem to have regressed into childishness. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, our author's not suggesting that every one of his hearers should be a pastor or a formal congregational teacher because, as Ephesians and 1 Corinthians tells us, that depends on the gifts the Spirit distributes. But he is insisting that they have been believers for a sufficient length of time for them to have actually mastered the basics of the faith, the basic truth of the oracles of God, that is, the scriptures interpreted in the light of Jesus. They should by now have mastered them and been able to explain them to others. But no, they have become so lazy, so disengaged from Christian truth that they needed, as it were, he says, to learn the ABC of Christianity again and to help them to see the effect of their lazy listening, he turns to a well-known picture in their culture of immaturity. He says, you really are just babes, people who can't handle solid food, only milk. And like babies, they're unskilled, inexperienced, in this case in relation to the word of righteousness. It's not that they haven't heard that gospel word, they just have no familiarity with putting it into practice because, like babies, they don't have the ability to do so. It's beyond their infantile capacity. But the goal of being a child is to grow up the maturity that our author speaks about at the beginning of chapter 6. In the way God's organised the world, being an infant is meant to be a temporary state, not a permanent one, and we all know that. The goal for everyone is maturity. And he gives a definition of maturity. The mature are those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The measure of maturity is the kind of choices you make. The consistent choosing of good over evil. A consistency acquired by practice. It's not just knowing No, maturity is knowing 
how to use what you know to live a godly life. And for that, you have to continually inform and discipline your intellectual processes with the truth. You have to practice saying yes to the gospel and the behaviour the gospel commands. And so the mature are those people who are equipped to accept responsibility for their own growth and flourishing. For consistently choosing the good is how you stay safe and flourish, how you avoid grief and trouble. And the great advantage the mature have is that they can have solid food. Yes, yes, it takes a little more effort to, you know, chew over and digest, but let's face it, as every adult knows, solid food is much more varied, interesting and sustaining than milk. So the mature are those who have a secure hold on life and truth and every one of us is to become mature. It's plain, isn't it, from this word that God expects you to be responsible for how you engage with his word. And so I hope that expectation of God informs the way you say, read your Bibles, participate in your growth groups, listen to Bible talks. God's saying you mustn't be a diffident, lazy listener. No, you have to be an active, engaged hearer of God's word. And you ought to manage your life so you can be, so you're alert, and so you have time to do it. Oh yeah, there are times in our lives when we have to make allowances, like when your sleep's being broken by young children, but those times will pass. God expects us to engage responsibly with his word. And he expects us to want to become mature. Immaturity is not desirable. Oh yes, childlike, as in a childlike humility and faith, is occasionally a term of praise. But childishness is never praised. And just as with a baby, failure to grow, failure to thrive in a believer is an issue. And you need to hear that because some people in our society can boast of what's really their determined immaturity. They wear it as a sign of their supposed spiritual superiority. You may have heard them. I am content with my simple faith, they say. A childlike faith, that's good enough. Don't tell me more. Getting serious about doctrine, thinking hard about what the Bible teaches and means for life, that just complicates life. I, I just simply believe. Oh, I don't want to think about same-sex issues and have an opinion on what the Bible says about it because that might expose me to arguments. Oh, I don't want to think about what happens to people who haven't heard the gospel. That might unsettle my comfortable life. Oh, and please don't expect me to have a view on whether God chooses some for salvation. That kind of thing just divides. I'm happy with the simple milk of the gospel story. Jesus loves me. This I know, which, let me say, is an incredibly complex statement when you consider yourself and your own sinfulness, but they don't seem to realise that. Jesus loves me. Now, I'm a great fan of milk, dairy farming ancestors, but there's nothing admirable or acceptable about living on milk. All the first readers would have recognised anyone who lived solely on milk was in a really dangerous position. You see, they lived in a society with a high infant mortality. The dictionary says many newborns never survived their first week. 
Less than half survived into their fifth year and only 40% to live to their 20th birthday. You see, as we ourselves know, our babies are not just cute, they are vulnerable and their grip on life is insecure. Moving off milk onto solid food is one of the things that actually increases your chance of survival. And maturity means having reached a place of safety as well as a place where you're responsible for yourself. Our author knows that while their sluggishness of hearing leaves them as babies on a milky diet, they are in danger. The danger, he'll point out in a minute, the danger of falling away. And you should recognise the danger of just staying on milk as well and be determined to become mature, to be a consistent consumer of sound Bible teaching, of solid food. But before he warns them of the danger, he lets them know in 6, 1 to 3 that he's not going to leave them sucking on the teat, won't leave them content with their milky diet. He's determined that they should, like him, be carried along by God to maturity. And so he's not going to cater to their desire and determination to remain in an infantile state. He's not going to go over material they should have grasped already. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not again laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. Leaving and going on does not mean abandoning the elementary doctrine of Christ. They are the foundation. No, leaving and going on means building on the foundation. And so our author's not content to start building the house and then not finish it. Of course, that's right, isn't it? The purpose of foundations is to be built on, not continually relayed and admired. And he briefly mentions what he does consider as the foundational elements of our faith the things each of us should understand and be able to explain in verses 1 and 2. Now, all of these things were actually matters discussed in Judaism. But what had brought his hearers out from Judaism, uh, what distinguished Christianity from Judaism, was the distinctive understanding of each of these that the gospel of Jesus gives and he expects them to be clear on this. So repentance from dead works and faith in God, well, that's the beginning of the Christian life. It's our response to the gospel of Jesus. Repentance is acknowledging Jesus as Lord, not us. And belief is putting your faith in God by putting your faith in the Son and his death to save you from the works that result in death. That is, the things you do that bring God's judgment, your sins. Our washing and the laying on of hands is perhaps less familiar to us. Now washings can also have the sense of baptisms. Judaism had many ritual washings and they also had a kind of a proselyte baptism, that is where you were a non-Jew moving to becoming a Jew. But as well as that for the people of this time there was the baptism of John the Baptist and of course being baptised in Jesus' name. Now, some of the first believers may well have had, say in Acts 19, at least three of these, the proselyte, John's, and then Jesus. 
And so they needed to get the relationship of each to the other straight. And the laying on of hands we see in the Gospels and Acts can include laying on for healing, for blessing, for commissioning, for receiving the Spirit. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment then also deal with our hope, what's expected at the end. You see, like the Pharisees, Christians are committed to both resurrection and judgment. But of course, the Gospel teaches us that the resurrection, in a sense, has already happened in Jesus' resurrection and his resurrection guarantees the resurrection to life of all those who trust him. And the Gospel also teaches that judgment is now entrusted to Jesus. He, the risen one, has the authority to judge and to forgive. These, he says, are, are the basic elements, the foundation. But he's not going to pause over this. This is what he expects all believers to have sorted out. But the things he mentions here may be a mystery for some of you. Perhaps you're here because you're interested in Christian things but have never had the gospel systematically explained to you, never had that foundation laid. And so as you hear these basic things, you realise that they're kind of gaps in your understanding. Or perhaps you're only just starting the Christian life and again, listening to these elements, these foundational elements, you realise there's still a bit you need to get straight. If that is you, come and talk. Come and talk to me or Andy or talk with the Christian who brought you. You see, foundations are only relayed with great expense. And so it's important to you to get your foundation right from the beginning. So come and talk. But our authors determined to go on and build on this foundation, to deepen their understanding, to help them move to the safety of maturity by training their minds in the truth. And so verse 3 he says, this we will do, that is, we will go on to maturity as God permits. He knows growth is dependent on God. Oh, and he also mentions God's permission because there are some whom he's about to tell us God does not permit to go on to maturity. For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up. To contempt, to contempt. Now notice he's moved from the first and second person address, we and you, to speaking more generally about those, those who have been enlightened. He's not saying that, well, this description is presently true of any of his hearers. No, this is a warning as something that their sluggishness, their dullness of hearing could lead to a warning about something he wants them to avoid, falling away. And it is, he tells us in 6.9, something that he thinks they will avoid. We feel sure of better things in your case, he says. But it is still a warning, and a warning given to Christians. You see, in verses 4 and 5, he is listing the experienced privileges of believers. In fact, he is emphasising how great the privileges of those who trust in Jesus, how great those privileges 
are. You see, it's believers who are spoken of as having been enlightened. And light is so much better than darkness. It's believers who have tasted, that is, experienced the heavenly gift of salvation and who have come to share in the wonderful gift of the Spirit, that God's life in us that changes us. It's believers who know the saving power of the Word of God and already have started to experience something of the life of the age to come in their relationship with God their Father. Uh, these things listed here are the unique blood-bought privileges, experienced privileges of believers. You see, he wants his hearers, he wants us to feel the greatness of what it is to be a follower of Jesus so we would then feel the horror of the sin he is talking about. That sin for which there is no possibility of restoring to repentance. That sin, he describes in verse 6, is falling away. That's what's called apostasy. Apostasy is the deliberate decision to abandon God, Christ and the fellowship of believers by rejecting the gift given. Now, apostasy is not the sin of those and can't be the sin of those who are not yet Christians. It's the sin of those in the camp of Christians. Oh, and, and apostasy is not being overtaken in some sin like lying or coveting or even adultery. No, no. Apostasy is very specific. It is the renunciation of what was once believed. This is made clear by the expanded description, an expanded description that shows us how horrible this sin is. Those who fall away, he says, are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now just... Think for a moment of how ugly that is. Now, of course, those returning to Judaism cannot literally crucify Jesus. He's died once and for all. But they can. Those who say, no, lo, who once said Jesus is Lord and now say he's not, they can join themselves to those who said it was right that Jesus be crucified, who mocked him as a liar, a deceiver, a pretender as he hung on the cross. And that's actually what you're doing, isn't it? If you've said, Jesus is Lord, and then you say, no, no, I was wrong, Jesus is not Lord, what are you doing? You're saying Jesus is a liar and that he deserved to die for misleading people, for claiming to be God's sons. You, you know, when you do that, you're saying, those who crucified him got it right. I'm on their team. And Jesus is nothing, just a deluded liar. Isn't that dreadful? How could someone who has tasted the benefits of Jesus' salvation do that? It's a returning evil for good, death for life. And how could anyone who has abandoned the foundation of repentance saying Jesus is Lord and faith ever be restored to it? It's impossible says our author, hear that. It's not just impossible for those who are saying Jesus is a liar to turn to Jesus for forgiveness, a kind of psychological impossibility, because if you've identified Jesus as a liar, why would you ever turn to him? No, I think it's actually stronger than that. 
impossible. For the God for whom all things are possible will not have it. He says it's impossible to restore to repentance. Now to help see the justice and inevitability of the judgment of those who return evil for good, who receive the gifts of the gospel but return cruel rejection, he adds an illustration. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. It's a sobering illustration. The end of that ground that's returned evil for good is to be burned. And that's appointed to the fearsome judgment that awaits those who fall away. It's a sobering illustration and a sobering warning to those who are becoming lazy, dull in their hearing, disinterested in the truth of Jesus, not growing but regressing, wanting to stay immature so they can avoid suffering for Jesus. He's saying, recognise the danger involved in that is great because it could lead to giving up, falling away, for which there is no repentance. But surely you say, this can't be speaking of true believers in Jesus, that the those being spoken of here, surely they must only have been pretend believers because God guarantees that true believers will persevere. Well, that's true. But who are true believers? <laughs> true believers are those who listen and heed what God says. So true believers will accept this warning as real and serious. And the warning that God's word gives will actually be the means, God's means of helping them persevere to the end. On hearing the warning, true believers will repent of that laziness and press on to maturity because they will know that this is a true God-given warning. But you think, if God knows true believers will persevere, how, how can this be a genuine warning to genuine believers? Well, the fact that all true believers will heed the warning doesn't make the warning less genuine. Let me give you an illustration. Think of a sheer cliff with a hundred metre drop and jagged rocks at the bottom. Now, around the top, the local community has kindly and wisely put a fence and a sign that says, Danger! Do not cross! Risk of death! Sensible. So let's say a visitor came and he's talking to a local. He starts the conversation, you know. Pretty dangerous drop. That's yeah, the kind of insightful thing visitors say. Yes, says the local. That's why we put up the sign. Danger! Do not cross! Ah, I see, says the local. Yeah, yeah, it says, danger, do not cross. So, so, so how many have actually crossed and fallen from the top and, and died? Ah, oh, well, says the local, smiling, none, none. Now, if the visitor then questioned the local about why they bothered put up the sign since no one had fallen off, you'd really wonder about that visitor's logic, wouldn't you? 
I mean, the sign is plainly true. Go off the edge, plummet to the bottom, and you die on the rocks below. The fact that no one has actually died is not an argument that the fence and sign is unnecessary. It's just a demonstration that they are effective. The fact that true believers listen to God's word, listen to the warnings against falling away from faith in Jesus and persevere, well, that's an argument for the effectiveness of what is a true warning. It doesn't suggest that the warning is either untrue or unnecessary. In fact, when you think about it, there is a kind of perversity in taking a piece of scripture that is actually shouting at you, and it is shouting at you, it's saying, make sure you don't fall away, apostasy is dreadful, it deserves the punishment God gives, don't fall away, don't be lazy. It's shouting at you, there's a perversity in taking that clear warning and making it the basis for an argument about whether believers can fall away or not. God doesn't give it to you to be argued over. He gives it to you to be listened to and heeded. So heed the warning. And if you see in yourself that laziness, that disinterest, that reluctance to engage with God's word, if you see that in yourself, if you see that you're starting to turn away from the solid food of God's word, you're saying, I don't want to think about it because it might be too hard, then repent while you can and improve your diet. Now, of course, as I've said, our author is convinced that his first hearers are not apostate, that they will heed this warning. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Why does he have this confidence about them? For God is not so unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. He's confident, firstly, in God. He expresses in a negative way his conviction that God is just and will remember them. So he actually, our author, relies on God's faithfulness and his commitment to his people. And in saying this about God's commitment, he's actually recalling what Jesus said to his disciples, isn't he? Whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's a disciple, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. So firstly, he's confident in God and his faithfulness. And secondly... He has seen in these believers evidence of their living faith. He speaks of their work and their love for God's name. Now, the work was probably their perseverance under trial and their sharing, their partnership that he speaks of in Hebrews 10 uh, with others who are also persecuted, sometimes being partners with those so treated. That actually speaks of material support. They loved God's people with what they possessed. And the love of God's name is love of God and his revelation of himself in Christ seen in their persevering service of the saints of God's people, those who have been made holy 
by Jesus. They show themselves in that loving service, a service that they're continuing to show to be truly Jesus' disciples. Again, he knows the words of Jesus. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. But note what he didn't do. He looks at God's faithfulness and he looks at what they do, the way they live. He doesn't say, oh, well, I've heard you make your confession or, oh, I know you came forward and made a decision. No, we can deceive ourselves with those things. He looks for fruit, especially for love of Jesus' people. But while he has that well-justified confidence in them, he wants them to continue so that they can come to what has been promised. Verse 11, We desire each one of you to show the same eagerness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Now desire is a strong, is a word of strong longing and emotion and it's for each person. Our author doesn't want any of them or any of us to miss out. So he wants the same zeal that they've been showing in loving one another, the same diligence that they've showed in serving. He wants that zeal present, seen and demonstrated in pursuing and securing their hope by being unwaveringly faithful to Jesus. Show that same earnestness. Show that same diligence. That pursuit of the fullness of their hope, which is objective, (laughs) will also give them an assurance of their hope, subjective, in their living relationship with Jesus. And he says they have to keep this diligence all the way to the end. And why does he want this earnestness? Why does he want this diligence? In order that you may not be sluggish, lazy, dull of hearing, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see, where this diligence to come to the fullness of their hope is, well, there'll be no sluggishness, no laziness in listening. They will want to know Jesus. They will want to grow in Jesus and hold fast to him. They will embrace the teaching that will strengthen them to persevere. They'll go on. And so, for example, they'll embrace the solid food of the priesthood of Melchizedek that will show them the folly and uselessness of returning to Judaism, of turning away from Christ. And so they'll join those like Abraham. Abraham, who's about to talk about in the rest of chapter 6, who through persevering by faith in the promise, and remember our promise is that Jesus is the saviour of sinners. Maturity is not the same as being sinless, right? Persevering faith in the promise and patience, long-suffering, inherit the promises, come at last to enjoy the fullness of what God has promised. The wounds of a friend are faithful and the warnings of God's word are life-preserving. These have been hard words for a good purpose, for nothing could be worse than falling away and nothing better than coming to enjoy all that God has promised. And that is what God wants for you. So listen to these words. Do you sense in yourself a growing laziness, a shying away from thinking hard about what the Bible says, 
a reluctance to engage with its teaching because it seems difficult or strange or might expose you to criticism or hard changes in your life. Listen to the warning. That kind of lazy listening is a step away from the horror of apostasy, of falling away. Now, this, what follows, is I know a trivial illustration, but it's true. Well, useful. Right, this is this. The Christian life is a bit like riding your bicycle, right? A bike, like the Christian life, is designed to go forward, to make progress to a goal. And it's very hard to stay in the pedals, isn't it, if you stop going forward. Even if you can do it for a little while, you tire and you inevitably fall off. <coughs> you stop making progress to your goal, to your hope. You stop growing as a Christian. Seek to only live on milk. And you may be able to keep it up for a little while, but you will become so weak that you'll be close to stopping, not falling off, but falling away. So accept your responsibility to become mature, to feed yourself on the solid food of God's word that will help you consistently choose the good, the good that will spare you grief and promote your health and life as a believer. So, for example... If you've never seen how Jesus is your great high priest and that he's the only saviour, well, give yourself to Hebrews 7 to 10. Keep reading and listening. Oh, if you've never wrestled personally with Romans, do. If you've never bothered to read the Old Testament so that you can see God's great plan that climaxes in Jesus and know the encouragement of that and get the big view of God's engagement with the world. Do. Oh, and there are other books, good Christian books, that can extend and consolidate your faith. And so, for example, if you've never read something like Knowing God, well, you ought to read it. Accept the responsibility to actively pursue the fulfilment of your hope by listening to Jesus, growing in conviction of his greatness, practising the obedience of faith in loving service, being willing to endure suffering for him. Accept the responsibility and so be amongst those who, because of God's faithfulness to his promise to save sinners through Jesus, come to inherit all that God has promised, that new heaven and earth where there'll be no pain or grief or tears, that heavenly city whose builder and maker is God which is just filled with light, that opportunity to drink forever from the river of life, to see the face of God. Remember, nothing could be worse than falling away and nothing better than coming to enjoy all that God has promised. So become diligent listeners. Get a good diet and become mature. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in your mercy, let us heed this word. And if we know in our hearts that we are drifting, that we are becoming impatient of hearing God's word, 
that we don't really want to engage in what he says for fear of what it would mean to us. Give us the grace of repentance. Help us to love Jesus, to love knowing of him, to love learning more of his greatness and how good and final a saviour he is. Please sustain us in that and help us to become mature people who will choose the good, choose the life of love and faith and hope always. Amen.